Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, the newest podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. I am Cody, one of the co-hosts, and today we are discussing Chapter 3 of The Crying of Lot 49. Uh, This one's kind of a big one. Um, A lot to talk about in here, specifically um, the, the whole play, but that's something that we'll come to um a little bit later we'll we'll touch on it in this episode and then we're going to dive deeper into it in a in a sort of bonus episode later on but uh for right now um will do you want to go ahead and give us a rundown of the chapter sounds good so off the bat we're we're treated to more foreshadowing and the name tristero is offered to us without justification for the first time in the book Oedipus entering a period of enhanced awareness but along by metzger's seduction and inverarity stamp collection the real moment of enlightenment, however, is split, and Oedipa can't recall which half occurred first. One was a letter she'd received from Mucho, just another in a series of seemingly vapid correspondences shared between the happy couple. Oedipa reminds herself of Mucho's habit of picking up 17-year-olds to dissipate any trace guilts over the ongoing fling with Metzger. But returning to the moment, she notices an apparent typo. Report all obscene mail to your potsmaster on the stamp. The other half was a night that she and Metzger, tired of the peeping eyes of the paranoids interrupting their intimate moments, found themselves at a bar frequented by electronic specialists, most of whom were employed by Yo-Yo Dine, called the Scope. They feel late to the party as the engineers around them stare, clearly already drunk. The bartender had only just invited them to the late-night live electronic music session they host on Saturdays when a Mike Fallopian sits down and starts pitching them on the Peter Pinkwood Society, a right-wing anti-industrialist party. After a moment of shared paranoia, Fallopian jumps into the origins of the group. Near the tail of the U.S. Civil War, the Confederate States of America sent a small naval fleet all the way to the California coast to open up the Second Theater. Unfortunately, by the time they arrive at their destination, all save one of the fleet fails to make the journey, leaving the CESS disgruntled, commanded by one Peter Pinkwood, as the sole combatant. To make matters worse for the Commodore, the Tsar of the Russian Empire had sent their own naval forces to assist the Union. Finally, one day, the disgruntled engages in combat with one or another of the Russian ships, which amounts to a shot fired and one returned, neither hitting their mark and slowly drifting apart. Pingwood takes this alliance between the Union and abolitionist Russia as a deep insult, finding wage slavery uglier than the chattel variety, and broods for weeks. The PPS, citing this engagement as the first military conflict between Russia and America, stand firmly against all forms of industrialization, as even the capitalist form inspired Marx. Pingwood lived out the rest of his years in California, making a living off real estate investments. Suddenly, a young mail carrier with a yo-yo dine badge comes through the door, and it seems everyone but Oedipa and her temporary beau is expecting a letter from a late-night inter-office mail run. Oedipa takes the opportunity to visit the ladies' room, finding that someone named Kirby has stenciled a solicitation for sophisticated fun with an unspecified number of participants, followed by a mailing address that calls itself Waste, W-A-S-T-E, and a strange insignia. Oedipa copies that down and returns to the din. Fallopian explains that the local chapter of the PPS uses the Yoyodyne internal mail system to avoid supporting the USPS. He is generally obsessed with private versus public mail carriers and is currently penning a book about the American history of them. Her awareness duly sensitized to such signals, Oedipa and Metzger, while waiting for documents to arrive from out of state, 
take a day trip to Fangosa Lagoons, one of Pierce's development center, followed by the Paranoids and Company. Shortly after arriving to the beaches of idyllic artificial Lake Inverarity, the Paranoids get the idea to steal a boat for a joyride. Metzger, hoping to preserve future lines of revenue, obscures his vision of the theft. As he and Oedipa make their way along the marina to join the musical Pirates, a blue tarp concealing Manny Depresso, the former attorney who played Metzger in the pilot of the show about his life, hisses to catch their attention. He's accidentally uncovered, and two suited men on the beach shout after him. They all board the Trimoran Godzilla II and set off for the island at the center of the lake. Depresso explains that he's returned to lawyerdom and is representing a Tony Jaguar Jungerace, a mafioso, in a suit against the Inverarity estate. Tony alleges that Pierce had shorted his organization for the delivery of bones used in the manufacturing of Beaconsfield cigarette filters. The bones, it turns out, had been those of G.I.'s long-assumed dead, whose corpses had sunk to the bottom of Lago di Pieta in Italy during World War II. Well, Tony Jaguar is a bit of a gambler, and is chasing down Depresso to demand an advance loan on the payment of that suit. Neither he nor Metzger think Tony will get the payday he expects. A paranoid groupie points out the similarities of the bone procurement story to a Jacobian re revenge play they'd all seen the previous week at a local theater, The Tragedy. Depresso is sent reeling into a paranoid fit, and the groupie tries to calm them down by demonstrating their affinity for pot. Metzger resumes protecting future revenue streams as they all light up. Depresso sees that two suited men are now on a boat of their own heading towards the island themselves. Spooked, he takes the Godzilla 2 to his car, marooning the the party until, eventually, the development security garrison rescues them. While they wait for the retired motorcycle cops, the paranoids treat Oedipa and Metzger to an ultimately useless synopsis of the play. Nonetheless intrigued, Oedipa convinces Metzger into seeing it with her the next day. Oedipa finds the whole thing enchanting. Metzger tries to get her to leave at the intermission himself unimpressed. When the name Tristaro is dropped at the end of the fourth act, Oedipa is further entranced. The show is gory, interminably long, and absurdly convoluted. Metzger compares it to a Looney Tune. When it finally ends, Oedipa insists on interrogating the director about something she can't quite name. Metzger ridicules her naivete, then her curiosity, before deciding to wait in the car. In the dressing room, the director, Randolph Driblet, initially insists that the play meant nothing, held no value on the page, that its author was a hack. Convinced that she's an academic in a feud of some sort, he directs her to the scripts in a filing cabinet, and tells her he'd made the copies from a book conveniently titled Jacobian Revenge Plays, which he'd purchased from a used bookstore, giving her rough directions. When Oedipa asks about the representations of Tristero, the author's intentions regarding it, Driblet launches into a digression on the artistic heart of a play. He sees himself as the projector at the planetarium, the source of life, magic, of stagecraft and drama in the production. The text couldn't bore him more. After the now customary offer of his bed, Oedipa excuses herself and promises to call. She returns to Metzger's car and takes an unusual amount of time to identify that Mucho is the DJ of the station the radio is tuned to. I guess first things first, what were your overall impressions of this chapter in, in comparison to the previous chapters? Um, so this is something that uh, the, uh, the Pinchin Wiki does get into. Uh, but the first time I reread um this chapter one thing that stood out to me was how, how little i understood the play uh rereading it again um for this uh episode um it was a little bit it was a little bit easier to follow and stuff um some other stuff that stood out to me i mean it's it's 
this one gets a little bit more uh, slapstick, a little bit more like the the um, before this. It's a lot of Edipa and one other person, um, either like Metzger or uh, Mucho. Whereas in this one, the the cast of characters is kind of uh, enlarged and widened. Um, there's a lot more. There's typically a lot more like characters in the scene. You know, the part where they go to Fango Lagoons and go around on the boat. It seems like there's at least like eight to ten, maybe even as many as twelve people um, hanging mm-hmm. out. Um, the bar that they go to is very very crowded and we do get some description of the some of the people in the bar but even in that part you know it's not just her and metzger talking it's her and metzger and fallopian um so it does kind of seem like this this chapter is a little bit more ambitious and kind of opens up a little bit more in comparison to the the first two chapters yeah well you you could try to be clever by saying that the first two chapters demonstrate the scale of inferiority's control and this demonstrates the scope that's a cool way to put it. Yeah. Just came to me. No, I like that. That's I hadn't thought about that. I'm I'm with you, Luke. I the first I would even I really the first probably two times I read the book, I I struggled with the play um and trying to even though it's it's short, you know, cuz it's really just a more of a, a synopsis of the play, but it was always difficult for me to kind of track who was who and and who was doing what and why and it still i i still had to really slow down uh for this read through in in the play just to try and keep track of who was who um but i found that i got more from it as well on this reading and i think also the supplemental stuff that i went through um helped as well but again the the play itself you know we'll we'll get into that later but yeah i i think you're right in that there's definitely more characters introduced here and that are in each in each of the scenes um especially yeah the the fangoso trip because you've got the uh edipa and metzger depresso and however many of the paranoids there are so yeah i think you're right in quoting it as anywhere between probably eight and twelve i i like this chapter a lot i think that it you know it, it really opens up and now that i'm especially thinking about you know what uh, Will said about the, the representing the scope of everything. I think it, yeah, it really starts to kind of widen the perspective on on what's going on and how vast everything really is. Yeah, and I do think there's more. Uh, we can probably get into this uh, further into the episode, but there's more social commentary in this in this part. Um, this part seems to be a little bit easier to kind of uh, like. It, it seems like more of a kind of a microcosm of of its time period. I mean, we get the, we get a few different references to nuclear war with, uh, there's a, there's a quote about, um, them having their, them not pressing the wrong button, which you would assume is about, Mm -hmm. uh, nuclear war. And then, uh, I have a few different things to say about the, the part about the Russian warships in San Francisco. Um, but that that does seem to be, and I think Fallopian even even kind of has a quote that um, pretty much says this. But that does seem to be, they do seem to draw a line between that and the beginning of the Cold War, um, which at this point in time, in the nineteen in nineteen sixty three uh, or nineteen sixty four, that you know I think one thing that we forget uh, when reading stuff from this time is how much the threat of nuclear war was kind of hanging over everything. Yeah. 
Um, so it does, this one does seem to be a little bit more. There's also stuff um, that seems to be kind of about social unrest in this part too, which I don't think in 63, 64, I don't think the whole like it, later in the 60s, it would people would be a little bit more correctly predicting uh, that, you know, like there's widespread social change. Um, that does seem to be kind of in here a little bit. There's also a few different references that kind of let you know that Pynchon was working on this book when he was working on Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, there's a, like two or three different ones. Um, and also there's a, there's a, there's that of two different references to Godzilla, uh, which comes up in Vineland, I want to say. Yeah. Um, I, what I really, I really appreciate about this chapter is that this is where we start to see uh, a mechanic that, becomes increasingly important to for the reader really as the book goes on and that is dependent truth it's it's mocked and presented mostly during the peter penguin society backstory where you have all of these historical events which are unverified and when you try to dig into them you find well this side of the story says this and the other side says the exact opposite and furthermore, you you see ultimately that there's no real truth underlying it. It's just the assumptions based on it's either this or that. So it has to be this other thing, too. You know, it's either the Gaidamak or the Bogatir. All of these things seem to be quite important to the Peter Penguin Society members. But at the same time, they refuse to acknowledge that it, none of it is likely to have happened, especially since at least Mike Fallopian thinks that Tsar Nicholas II did all of this. Yeah, and that kind of leads into uh, one thing I wanted to get into about that section is um, I did, I, I have a book that's like the, it's like the Weisenberger companion to Gravity's Rainbow, but it's for Crying Up Lot 49. And it does get into how that section uh, could be a reference to the Gulf of Tonkin incidents that led to uh, America really ramping up our our presence in Vietnam. Um, the Gulf of Tonkin incidents. Uh, I did a little bit of research, not super in depth research, uh, but they do involve uh, you know naval boats um, shooting at each other, um, and they also because there's there's one uh, I think it's August second, nineteen sixty four was uh some north vietnamese um like pt boats like gunboats um shot at a naval a u.s naval warship um that's confirmed but the only physical evidence of that uh, i want to say is just like a single bullet hole in the u.s warship and then there was supposedly another incident on august 4th 1964 uh which later i think uh, in like the 2000s, it was eventually confirmed that that was just like a weird miscommunication. And so nothing actually did happen. Uh, but a few critics kind of pointed to this set, that section of Ping the origin of the Penguin Society to be a, a kind of parody of the Gulf of Tonkin um, incidents. But another thing that's interesting about that is that Fallopian... You know, goes into it's. We only get a summary. We don't get his direct dialogue. But after this whole long uh, description of that incident, 
Uh, Fallopian himself uh, says, who cares? Question mark. Fallopian shrugged. Um, which is just kind of a funny... that It kind of made me laugh. I mean, like go, going into like this long story like about something that happened like 100 years ago, and then you yourself right at the end of it are just like, who cares? You know, which that, that could also be a response to an in-depth uh study of the gulf of tonkin incidents is you know like why do we why would why did we even care why did the u.s government care um if you follow the news now i mean there's there's much more serious um international incidents usually involving aircraft now that you know don't lead to the the one of the aggressors you know pouring in troops to the other countries um like you know, like on like the other, and like like we don't. America doesn't invade, you know, whenever Russia like shoots down one of our drones or something. Um, so it, I do think that I did find that 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 comparison of that part with the Gulf of Tonkin incidents to be to be pretty uh, convincing. Yeah, definitely, I definitely see some uh, similarities there. I, I don't think that's a false flag at all. No. Well, while we're so while we're on that topic in 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 my research on this what what i did find i did a little bit of of a dive into the john birch society who they're mentioned kind of in passing as as being uh what's the exact quote they're called they're called left leaning i want to say yeah left leaning which is is funny because the the birch society is pretty hardline conservative group um i don't know if if either of y'all are familiar with them at all but Basically, they they came about in the in the late fifties and were kind of tied into the McCarthyism and anti communist sentiments at the time. I mean, they're still around, which is you know weird, but not surprising at the same time. But for for them to be considered by the Peter Penguin Society as left leaning, uh, kind of gives some insight into how they what you know what their political ideologies would be. Um. Fallopian is an interesting. I tried to dig into his the, his name to see if there was anything that I could parse out as far as you know why that name because it seems as with all of Pension's characters' names, there always seems to be a specific reason for it that you can kind of dig around and find. I wasn't really able to find anything about his particular name as it might relate to any kind of um, neoconservatism at the time or anti-communist sympathies other than you know it's obvious literal meaning i don't know if you guys have any insight on on his naming well there i there might i don't this is not insight you could maybe construe something with him being a quasi director of information in the metaphorical sense of the egg falls out of the ovary and is usually caught in the fallopian tomb where it's then brought into the womb um, but I don't, I mean, that's literally, I don't, I don't know what Fallopian is doing to justify him being some kind of carrier of knowledge. Cause all he does right. throughout the book is essentially be a sounding board for Oedipa. And I mean, it, you know, he, he's Armenian. So the IAN thing is there, but that's, that's all I can get out of the name. I found it kind of random, perhaps. I don't know. Well, it might, it might on, a, it might be more of just like pension poking fun at like the hyper masculinity of people like the John Birch Society. That's true. That could be. 
I don't know. I think that might just be one of his. Yeah, it could just be one of his weird kind of names. But anyways, going back to the whole Birch Society thing, I, I I find it interesting because you know when Fallopian talks about what ended up happening to Peter Penguin, you know because the whole concept of of both really both of the Peter Penguin Society and the Birch Society is this strong you know anti-communist sentiment that runs throughout that but there's also you know they they are at least the peter penguin society is is more anti-industrial and so that kind of forces him into a position of also being anti-industrial capitalism um which you know he even brings that up he says uh good guys and bad guys you never get uh you never get to any of the underlying truth sure he was against industrial capitalism so are we didn't lead inevitably to Marxism underneath both are part of the same creeping horror. So even though, you know, they're, they're anti-communist at the same time because of their anti-industrialism sentiments, it puts them in a position of being anti-capitalist. But then Peter Penguin at the end of all of it anyways, just ends up becoming the antithesis of, of everything that he had initially started out as. Fallopian goes on to say he finally resigned his commission, violated his upbringing in code of honor. Lincoln and the czar had forced him to. That's what I meant when I said uh, casualty. He and most of the crew settled near L.A., and for the rest of his life, he did a little more than acquire wealth. And I think that's interesting because that also ties into what happened to a lot of the 60s countercultural, counterculture movement um, icons. You know, a lot of them who were anti-capitalist and were all for, you know, movement towards a free society and everything like that. By the 80s, a lot of those guys had become the opposite of that and were um, some of them became politicians. I think um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. One of the uh, Chicago Seven um, ended up becoming a political figure in California. He ended up getting I think he was killed in a jaywalking accident or something. I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head now, but I can't. But a lot of those guys, you know, ended up becoming everything, you know, everything they worked against is what they ended up becoming. And I, I think that's an interesting kind of thing to bring up. That happened obviously after this novel was written and took place, but I, I kind of can't help but feel that Pinchon had kind of a the foresight to see that that was probably going to happen as it's, I don't want to say the nature of people, but it tends to happen to people like that. Well, I, I don't think we can ignore the fact that while to a large extent um, fallopian where he talks about, you know, being against industrial capitalism and, you know, there are no good guys, guys, you can't just, there's no left, there's no right. That is on some level tension just talking directly to the reader. Um, mm-hmm. One consistent thing that he does associate across his novels with the far right is a kind of insipid quote-unquote principle like an insistence of having higher values that ultimately boil down to nothing except for protecting your ego or short-term profit and he's you know he he's generally more sympathetic to the leftist and the anarchist movements but um that is a particular thing he associates with the right wing. So at the beginning of the chapter, uh, to kind of go back and, and start back there, um, we get another mention of the tower. And 
I I thought that was interesting because I I guess I had totally forgotten about that in my previous readings. But not only the the mention of the tower, but also the fact that we are given the information that Pierce um, viewed Oedipa really is not. I don't I don't want to say he viewed her as not human because I I can't support that fully. But the fact that he substituted her um, presence and her humanity with things like stamps, um, I think speaks a lot to his character. And I wanted to know if you got like what, what your thoughts were on the, the reference back to the tower. So that's, that's one thing that I, I was thinking about a lot this week. Um, there's some stuff I wanted to talk about with the first chapter, but I may wait for our general discussion about the book. Um, I did link the, the word tower, uh, with tarot cards, uh, I'm not an expert on tarot cards. Um, I do, I do have a tarot card deck that I kind of mess with every once in a while, but um, I, you know, I'm not, I don't really know how to phrase it, but I don't, I don't know a lot about it. I just kind of mess with it. Um, but there, there is, I think it's part of the major arcana, arcana, um, the the card, the tower. Doing a little bit of research into it, um. There, there's all, there's often with tarot cards, uh, like the meaning of a tarot card can often be kind of up in the air, and it does seem to be a lot of the meanings for tarot cards do seem to be somewhat ineffable. Uh, but one word that stuck out to me whenever I was doing my research is that the the tower card in tarot um, can can speak to uh, revelation, uh, like an epiphany, um, which does seem to be you know like she does. Oedipa in chapter one, the end of chapter one, does seem to have a sort of epiphany while she's looking at the at the painting with the tower. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about a little bit, just for a second, is you know Tristero. Phonetically, tarot is at the end of the. You know, it does. Whenever you say Tristero, you say the word tarot uh, as you do so. And um, if if you've read Gravity's Rainbow, which I know all three of us have, um, there's that. Um, pretty pretty seminal like much talked about scene in gravity's rainbow concerns uh, a tarot card reading um so it it pension is aware of of tarot cards and that kind of stuff which would definitely kind of play into his obsession with the counterculture and that kind of stuff and i do think that stuff like tarot cards probably got to be a little more prominent in the 60s than they had been previously I I don't think we can ignore the tarot connection there. I hadn't thought about it, but I think you're completely correct, especially with with the tower being such a important symbol of this book, a book that is all about um, you know, the pride of one man who was a land developer. You know, the the tower is, you know, it traces its roots back to the myth of the Tower of Babel, you know, a parable all about the folly of humanity striving for godlikeness. Yeah, I well, and I think you know, as Luke mentioned, it it comes up again in Gravity's Rainbow, the the tarot. I think it comes up in a couple of other books too. I can't recall specifically. I I almost want to say it comes up in Against the Day, at some point. It comes up in Against the Day. I think it comes up in all of his books. I, I kind of think it does. I think it at least pops into some part of every book. And I think it's interesting when, and I'm going to come back to this later. Cause I, I, I have this book of essays um, about 
specifically about Crying of Lot 49, but in it, there's a chapter that talks about uh, semiotics and how it ties into this book, which I think is hugely important. Um, and I think the tarot is an interesting, an interesting thing to bring up because I don't, I don't myself subscribe to tarot as being a, you know, what it claims to be and what its proponents claim it to be, but I find it fascinating. And I think in, when you look at it in the context of something like this, it really comes down to subjectivity and in a, in a sense, predestination where the outcome of whatever, however the cards are laid out kind of determines the path that you're on. And there's really not much you can do to alter that path. And I think that's kind of, the idea is that, you know, Oedipus on this path that she probably can't really change, but there's, you know, along the way, there are all these symbols as there are, you know, the tarot has all these different cards with symbols on them. And the importance of those symbols is what has to essentially be determined. And this book in particular is just, is so um, crowded, not crowded, but it's just, it's, it's brimming with symbolism and, and I mean, literal symbols, you know, obviously the, the muted horn and so much other little things that pop up along the way, but I, and I'll, I'll bring it back up again towards the end here, you know, because I have some really interesting kind of quotes that he brings up in here, but the whole thing with semiotics, like I, I spent some time a few years ago, like really diving into semiotics and it's a really fascinating subject and to kind of overlay that concept onto this story. Um, helps i think to kind of understand what it's trying to get at 100 percent. now to go back to the the stamps as substitute uh for oedipa for pierce uh, what that reminded me of is i've been in romantic relationships where um i can get kind of i'm adhd and i can get kind of hyper focused on stuff and i've had romantic partners kind of comment on the fact that like reading especially like there's times when i'm so into books that i'll i'll walk around my apartment or whatever like with the book in hand and won't like basically just won't take breaks from the book mm-hmm. and i did just kind of think that that may just have been edipa being somewhat jealous of him having um hobbies that he was super absorbed in and i didn't necessarily take it as a bad as maybe as bad as as uh you might have cody um Cause I, I just, I mean, I, I've had experience with people responding negatively to, to me being obsessed with, with a hobby. So. Yeah. I, I read it more than that way too, but I think, I think it's meaningful to consider that Piercy is a super weird dude who doesn't seem to have a whole lot of empathy for other people. So it might've been meant literally. Yeah. Well, and that's, I, I mean, so that's a good example of kind of the, different ways that that the symbology in this book can be viewed and i think that's kind of important because i think something i've you know i think we mentioned this too in in the the introduction episode to the whole show was that there's to say that there's a right or wrong way to analyze not just not just pensions work but really any art in general um I, I don't think it's fair to say there is a right or wrong way. As long as you can, I think, support what you're saying, you know, with in, in the context of whatever it is that's being analyzed, you know, I think it's it's fine. So, I, I mean, that's a good point, too. What, what uh, Luke had mentioned about, 
you know, that focus on, on something else and how someone can just perceive that. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that makes absolute sense. On that same page, I wanted to get y'all's opinion on this. The, the narrator uses the word logically, I think it's three times in two sentences. Um, and it's kind of an internal dialogue that Oedipa has. I, my initial kind of knee-jerk reaction to that was that that's because of the paranoia that's kind of setting in and how it's starting to cloud Oedipa's mind is that that's her trying almost desperately to, you know, convince herself that she's not being paranoid because, you know, that kind of like logically it has to be this logically it has to be that like you're, you're kind of motivating yourself to, to believe that, you know, you're not being paranoid, that you're thinking about this logically. Yeah, and it, it, it definitely, it's, if it's not an ironic saying, if, if it's not ironically saying, well, Oedipa is thinking that she's thinking logically, but really she's being completely irrational, it could also just be like, well, paranoia is not a disorder of reasoning. It's not an issue of not being able to do math or you know, understand a chain of causal effects. What it is, is a, it's a distortion of perception. Mm -hmm. It's it's your, uh, what you take for granted before you begin solving the puzzle is where the problem lies. And so that I think also ties back to, um, her, and I'm, I'm thinking about this just now with, with what you and Luke had mentioned about the stamps and Pierce, Pierce's interaction with them and how it was viewed by Oedipa. I wanted to bring up the uh, the idea of Manny Depresso's name being a play on manic depression, and if if we view it as Oedipa is is manic is suffering from what was known as manic depressive episodes, I think now it, bipolar is kind of the the proper term for that. Um, that could be in line with her personality if she's, you know. Pierce just has a hobby and he spends time doing it. And she perceives that as being like, Oh, he doesn't care about me. He only cares about his, his stamps that could track. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm, you know, I may be digging too deep into that, but I know, you know, as we mentioned earlier, with pensions, uh, naming conventions, I don't think that's too far off base. Yeah, I mean, he. there are two different sections of this uh, chapter that do seem to speak to the fact that Manny Depresso does have some severe mental health issues, whether or not that's bipolar disorder, um, schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia. Uh, he does say that he bought an XKE uh, while temporarily insane, uh, which speaks to the fact that he was probably manic um, mm-hmm. it could also speak to the fact that he was maybe on drugs or something. Um, and then we get the quote, um, they've been listening, scream depresso, those kids all the time. Somebody listens in snoops, they bug your apartment, they tap your phone. Um, which I mean, he's a lawyer who's also an actor, you know, I guess he does have dealings with, uh, Cosa Nostra or the mafia, which would put him on the on the police's, the government's radar. Uh, but that does kind of speak to a certain amount of craziness. Um, one thing I do want to address with the question of Oedipa's uh, mental health is, um, I think, I'm pretty sure, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist, um, but I'm pretty sure, like, you can, you can have what's known as a psychotic break, um, 
and not necessarily get not actually have a uh, not actually be bipolar or or whatever. I mean, the um, psychotic breaks can happen to people um, just due to stress, uh, drug abuse, um, stuff like that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Edipa, you could make the argument that Edipa, if she is having a psychotic episode, um, which is more of a thing, I think, in chapter four, five and six would be a little bit more convincing um, thinking of that. But it could, you know, you could link that to the stress of having to execute her, his, her um, ex-boyfriend's will and the kind of dissolution of her marriage with Mucho and a bunch of different stuff. Um, to bring up, I keep on bringing up that, that self-published um, guy who who um, who wrote the, the new close readings of Crying Lot 49, but he brought up um, Oedipa in relation to obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, which I do think, I think an aspect of obsessive-compulsive disorder can be um, seeing patterns and signs in things that um, a normal person may not actually notice or whatever. I'm not an expert on any of that, but yeah, if we, if we want to really dig into the psychoanal psych, psychoanalysis of it, um, you know, she she might be like like you said, Luke, early, in earlier episodes, um, she might be depressed. She might be generally repressed in either a Freudian or more, more colloquial sense. Um, but the these kinds of like moments of clarity these moments of religious vision and enlightenment that she's experiencing those are the types of things that people absolutely experience in the beginnings of a psychotic break and during the peaks of um of a manic episode Mm -hmm. now she's not going around thinking that she is solving all of this and that's the only reason i would assume that it's not mania that that bipolar is not really um central to her as a character you know whether you want to call it just a psychotic break or psychotic depression um development of schizophrenia which is which might be kind of hinted to in vineland all of those all of these things where she's finding these symbols as these transcendent transcendent things yeah, that's really indicative of somebody who's, um, in technical terms, uh, losing it. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, we get a little bit more uh, of a look into her her relationship with Mucho, and I think that could, you know, hint at whatever's going on with her mental health. Because, like, on page, on, on in my edition, on page 32, um, we basically get the, the implication almost outright that her and Mucho have an open marriage. Um, when she's talking about how, um, you know, she she was writing letters to Mucho and gets the feeling that um, he kind of knows what's going on. And then there's kind of that um, glimpse into the past where Mucho's had his eyes on younger women um, and that it's kind of just, you know, she knows about it and it's just kind of allowed to happen. That's how, I mean, that's how I read it at least. I don't, I don't know about y'all, but it's, it definitely seems like they have an open relationship. I wouldn't, I didn't read it as an open relationship, but only in the technical sense, because 
like you said, clearly they don't uh, hold much grudge against one another for stepping outside of the relationship. But it does seem to me more like um, Oedipa just knows that... That's a good, yeah. J- just knows that his response to to feeling threatened in the relationship, his response to being replaced with another man is to go find a younger, prettier girl. And that's because um, there is that 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 um, article that appeared in in Playboy. I want to say in nineteen seventy one, um, like who is Thomas Pynchon and why did he run off with my wife? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I I do own that that issue of Playboy. I haven't opened. I haven't read that article in a while. Um, just as an aside, I was talking about owning that issue of Playboy um, at a party, and it definitely it really amused people that I own uh, an edition of Playboy <laughs> from the early 70s. But um, And that you got it for the article, too. Yeah, um, but it, it, in that article, it, it, the the guy who wrote it um, accuses Pynchon of um, getting close to his friends' wives and then, um, you know, quote, running off with them, end quote, um, which does... I don't... I mean... It could that that whole article could it does kind of read like the guy's just kind of trying to like talk shit about pension. It doesn't read as super academic or um, measured or objective. And um, the guy up implies stuff about pension um, in that in that article that I'm not sure is is real. I don't I I wouldn't I don't take that that article as gospel at all. Um, although it does seem there does seem to be some truth to the fact that Pynchon and the guy's wife did have a relationship, um, which I don't know um, about like the, I don't know about the morality of all of that. I mean, the '60s were you know like the time of sexual awakening, and um, even into the '70s, I think the word "swinger" it appears in that article as well. Um, I don't know. I did read this this the thing with Mucho and Adipa as kind of them being is maybe not them having an open relationship, but them having a more like broken relationship where they both kind of wish the other one was monogamous, but um, neither of them seem to really care about the other one enough to actually achieve that monogamy. Um, yeah, I, maybe the the better term I should have used would be like a like a grudgingly open relationship. Like they, neither of them is really going to stop the other from doing anything, and they're not going to stop themselves from doing anything either. It's just definitely it, it's a it's a sad glimpse into that part of their personal life. Yeah, and it, what what do you guys think about in general Mucho's um, thing with teenagers? Is is that something that is supposed to be meaningful, or is it kind of pinching, just kind of saying, "Yeah, well, men are pigs." I kind of I see it kind of like that. Yeah, it does seem that was kind of an aspect of of the sixties. It does seem to be like it says. It does seem to me. Um, I'll I'll probably get into this a lot more with inherent vice, uh, but I did write a screenplay about uh charles manson hanging out with the beach boys um and -hmm. living with the beach boys drummer and stuff which is a true story uh but i i did recently about a year or two ago i read that book chaos by tom o'neill which was kind of making waves for a little bit um and you know manson manson um a lot of the women in the manson family um 
met Manson when they were like 14, 15, 16. Yeah. Below the age of 18. And it does seem to be a thing in the in the 60s for teenagers to um, run away from home and then be taken advantage of by people like Charles Manson. I don't know. Comparing Mucho to Charles Manson is obviously a stretch. And I don't, you know, Mucho's not <laughs> well, nearly as bad. But it, it does seem to be a thing in the 60s for older men to to take advantage of the uh, people's, um, you know, kind of carelessness about sex. Yeah. Well, and especially as it ties into the music industry, since since Mucho is a DJ. And, you know, true, the yeah. 60s was the, that was the time of the groupies. And, you know, it's coming to light more and more now, you know, these these wildly inappropriate relationships that were being, you know, carried out by, you know, these these musicians in their 20s and 30s with these girls who were in their sometimes early teens. And it's, you know, it's fucked up. But I, I do think that's, you know, like like Will mentioned, like, I think that's Pension's kind of way of just being like, yeah, men are disgusting assholes and they'll use their you know, whatever modicum of fame they have, even if it's just a radio DJ uh, at a local station to manipulate young girls into a relationship. Well, and this whole conversation just kind of not, not strictly related to lot 49 in general, but more a general pattern in Finchin's novels. He, he does repeatedly, especially in inherent vice, like you alluded to, Luke, um, you know, he, he mocks that trend of, you know, the, the, the quote unquote forward thinking, quote unquote, feminist hippie men who just kind of used their ability to speak the lingo to sleep around with all the women and abuse them just as much as the prior generations. Um, and keeping that in mind, alongside the the playboy article and the other rumors and you know knowing that pension was hanging out with the hip folk music crowd do we feel like he was one of those guys and that you know in his later years he's found regret or just that he uh was a free love guy thought those people were messing it up for the good guys like him i mean it's hard to say it is hard to say. I, I do think it might have been in that Playboy article. Um, I do remember coming across some type of um, story about Pynchon where he was in the 60s um, hanging out with uh, teenagers when he would have been in his uh, mid to late 20s, early 30s. I don't... It, it, as with everything with Pynchon's biography... I didn't. It didn't strike me as uh, particularly convincing of a story. It did seem to me kind of be a, another way that Pynchon and Salinger are kind of um, confused for one another. Because uh, it is. It is more. It's much more uh, documented that Salinger in the '60s was hanging out with teenagers, and I, it does seem to be like Salinger didn't even want to. Um, they just kind of made him. The teenagers did. Well, um, I don't know, I mean, and I don't know where I got that from. I can't remember exactly where the, I came across that story. So, I mean, with with the article, the Playboy article, I mean, I think the thing, and I haven't read it. I I've, I know what you're talking about. I've I've heard of it. I've just not read it. Um, I think the thing, what what makes that whole thing incredulous to me is the fact that we're a we're getting one side of the story. 
So you, we have no way of knowing, you know, even that guy's wife, we have no idea what her side of the story is. Um, but additionally, like if it was 1971, pension obviously wasn't gravity's rainbow hadn't come out. So he wasn't the big name that he would eventually, I would, I wouldn't even call him big name, but he didn't have the, the kind of clout that he had post gravity's rainbow. But I think even at that point, it was kind of known that he was, and I know he doesn't like the word reclusive, but that he valued his privacy. So I think the guy who wrote the article would also have been doing so knowing that the odds of pension coming back to clarify or refute any of it were slim to none. Yeah, yeah. and one thing that I've, I've, I have picked up on that seems really believable is pension does seem to, if, if uh, an associate of his talks about pension in the press, um, that does. I have heard that Pynchon will then cut that person out and just not, mm-hmm. like, basically, just not even acknowledge they exist. Um, which I I do believe that that's a thing. Um, which it it makes sense to me that he would do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that guy was Jewel. I think it's Jewel Siegel. That name's coming to me. But that, that name guy sounds was, right. That 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 guy was obviously burning the whatever bridge between him and Pynchon existed by publishing that. And it's Playboy, you know, I mean, I, I know that Playboy used to be a kind of more respectable, like people used to publish short stories in Playboy that, you know, would would make like the, the best short stories of the year and stuff. Um, but, you know, it's Playboy, like it's going to be, yeah. it's intentionally salacious. Yeah. Well, so I haven't done any digging into the backstory of it, and I've only read that article once and it's been a while now. I, but, but if I'm honest, I always interpreted it as kind of an engineered piece of comic writing to 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 take this guy who even as early as you know 71 was known for being reclusive being you know a, a little bit iffy about being seen in public and being talked about and i can't imagine a funnier thing to jokingly write about than this weird nerdy guy who's mostly famous for at that point in time you know writing a very impressive but weird and sprawling novel in the form of V, and then a much shorter and much weirder one in the form of Lot 49, and saying, yeah, this guy fucks. <laughs> like, it, I, I always interpreted it that way, which is that, probably, I don't know. That is a good point, and it does seem to be, that's, that's I think, the only piece of writing that, like, that that guy is really known for. Um... You know, I don't. It does seem that he does seem to be kind of trying to capitalize on the fact that he was and ran in the same circles as Pynchon, and kind of like what you were talking about. I mean, it does seem to be an attempt to humanize Pynchon, um, which can also be interpreted as an attempt to take down Pynchon. Uh, those seem those two kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. So uh, in, right after the that kind of bit about Oedipa kind of mentioning that she feels well not Oedipa mentioning but the narrator mentioned that Oedipa feels that her uh that Mucho knows what's going on we also see another instance of the the uh the paranoids trying to creep in on her uh at at that time sexual relationship with Pierce not Pierce sorry with um Metzger and it's I don't know. I, I, I know it's kind of, a, I don't want to call it a throwaway line, but it was just kind of briefly mentioned, but I think it's important in the fact that Oedipa at this point just lacks any kind of privacy. You know, her, her life now is public and, and, and out there for everyone. 
Yeah, the the part where like the 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 lengths that they have to go to to have sex in the in the walk-in closet um, mm-hmm. is a really fun visual image. You know, Metzger's legs being um, in where like the where a drawer would be in a in a chest of drawers is really is really interesting. Um, it does seem to be, I mean, I don't, it's kind of unclear to me how they're being voyeurs. I mean, other than there's that movie that came out with Chris Hemsworth that's set on like the Nevada, California border. I forget what it's called, where like people are like observing people in the, in a hotel and it has to do with like the FBI and like a, uh, bank robbery. It, it was a semi-famous movie. It came out a few years ago. But besides like weird stuff like that, you know, like two way like two way mirrors and stuff like that, it does seem to be unclear how exactly they would be watching um, the people in the because it, it does seem to be that it's not just limited to Metzger and Edipa either. Um, it seems to be pretty much anyone who has sex in that hotel is running the risk of the teenagers watching them. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a passkey. They I think they had copied the the pass yeah miles key. miles handed them out. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, I think yeah, I think. Which right, I mean, yeah. he's a sixteen-year-old, so and you give a sixteen-year-old that kind of authority is, you know, you're asking for all kinds of shit to go down. One thing, one thing I found interesting about this chapter is I'm not an expert on the history of electronic music, but like sixty-three, sixty-four is like super early for I want to say it's like synthesizer type stuff that it's talking about, like in the in the scope, which is it comes up a little like a yeah. few paragraphs later. Because I want to say, I mean, that's around, I forget when Dylan, quote, went electric, end quote. 67 um, at Newport. I think it was yes, 67. That might have been after even this book was published. Um, mm-hmm. But I have, I have, um, I've listened to an album that's like an early synthesizer album, but I thought that was from the 70s. It could have been from the 60s. It but just took off more in the 70s, but the 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 beginnings of it were kind of coming around in the 60s. I mean, the 70s is obviously, you know, you had stuff like um, Wendy Carlos Williams doing the, the Shining score and stuff like Kraftwerk kind of coming to the forefront. But yeah, it, it was getting its early experiments done in, in the 60s. Yeah, so the, the theremin was is usually considered to be the first yeah. uh, synthesizer, and that was invented in the 20s. Um, and On accident, it, too. Yeah, yeah. And things like the gunshot machine and audio oscillators and contact mics, those are really just taking normal studio equipment and making them malfunction, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, Cody. Yeah, the so like the oscilloscope was that was famously used at the beginning of the Outer Limits, which I think is a was airing around this time. Um, yeah, 1963 is when when that started. So it wasn't so much that it was electronic instruments as it was they were taking available electronic equipment and manipulating it in a way to create these very tonal pieces um, that would eventually, you know, lead to the development of synthesizers and, and things of that nature. But it's, it's a, I don't want to say it's a stretch to say electronic music was happening on this time, but the absolute beginnings of it were, start, were certainly starting to come into, into play. Yeah. It's almost more like, um like garage noise more than electronic music as we think of it nowadays. Yeah. 
yeah. the closest to a like a proper synthesizer they would have had would be a Mellotron, right? And that I mean that's mm-hmm. just essentially a tape deck. Yeah, I mean you had things like um the the Hammond B3 was out I think around that time and that was a more of an organ, but it was it had electronic elements in it. Um so it's yeah, it's definitely the the beginnings of it and the the name that was mentioned i'm i'm trying to go back in my notes and find it stockman i think or something like that stockhausen stockhausen yeah that one i don't really have much knowledge on him um but i know he's an actual person who had to do with he was a german composer it sounds right with that name. Uh, the, he's associated um, with electronic music, I want to say. The, the yeah. ancient wiki says he was a German composer and was a large influence on the Beatles, mostly. That Yeah, he was, he was on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. I remember they, that was one of the many, many people that were on the cover there. Um, I'm looking at his... Yeah, it, it seems like he was influential in the world of musique concrète which if you're not yeah. familiar is basically a combination of recording just random noises and like punching the microphone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that way. And then the other thing that came up in that same section was the, um, what is it called? The, I'm going to horribly mispronounce this, the Lisa, Lisa Zhu figures. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a curve. It's a mathematical curve, which makes sense. Cause it's, this is Pinchon. And it graphs a system of parametric equations, which I, so that ties back into oscilloscopes because that kind of, if you're familiar with what an oscilloscope looks like when it's displayed on a screen, it's kind of showing that wavy sine, it's kind of a sine wave uh, interspersed with another sine wave uh, or intersected by another sine wave, I should say. Um, that's what a, a Lisa Zhu curve is. Um, how that ties into mathematics and, and all that, I could not tell you. That's way beyond my scope. Um, but it's definitely, uh, it's it's really, really cool imagery to describe it that way because it definitely has that kind of, especially when you see it waving like that, it has that sort of dancing flow, like almost a ballerina. One thing I wanted to um, get into a little bit is to kind of call back to what I was talking about with the Cold War and the mentions of nuclear bombs and stuff, which I do think uh, part of I, I I've mentioned this before, but I did the Gravity's Rainbow read along along with the subreddit. It was my second time reading Gravity's Rainbow, and somebody was talking about how the mention there's mentions of cosmic bombs in Gravity's Rainbow, which I didn't realize until somebody posted about it on the subreddit um, that that meant a nuclear bomb. I thought it was just some weird like you know kind of typical. Um, thing with pension that I just kind of file under like weird phrasing or cool weird phrasing, uh, but I guess it actually means something. But I did find some people, some uh, scholars, talk about how the 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 horn or the trumpet being muted is kind of like um, the the trump of apocalypse being stopped or being muted. Yeah, which then which would then place. Um, you know, like waste and the Tristero as being in some way uh, as part of um, some type of scheme to to stop the apocalypse. And uh, the play is called Pre-Apocalyptic, um, which I do think is interesting. I'm not an expert. This is just now occurring to me. I'm not an expert. I don't know if the Puritans, how um, 
like millenarian. I think it's the word is millenarian, like how apocalyptic they were. Um, I know it's a big thing with, um, you know, I was raised in kind of uh, conservative churches. Uh, I'm not religious anymore. Uh, luckily, the churches were not super apocalyptic, but I do know it's still a thing with with fundamentalist churches to think that the apocalypse is is going to happen and stuff. Um, um, no, I, I know the thing you're talking about with the the mention of the the muted horn. I think it was in in the same article that I was reading earlier this week, the Charles Hollander article about how the whole of Lot 49 is is kind of just a allegorical JFK assassination story. I think he mentioned it in there. It may have also been in that book of essays I have, but I'm going through the Hollander article right now. I'm not seeing it, but I don't know. Yeah, and there are to go on the JFK thing. Um, there's the there's the reference to Dallas in this chapter. Dallas and Washington and California, yeah, yeah, which does seem to be interesting. And then this is something I haven't seen anyone comment on at all. But we do get the the word gunboat in this chapter. And actually, someone on the subreddit made a post about um, like food type words, like food serving words, and this book um and put in two quotes that both feature the word gunboat uh nobody really i don't at least when i saw that post on reddit nobody was really interacting with the post um i didn't follow it but it is it is interesting that the word gunboat comes up especially in this chapter because jfk in world war ii um i think his his service in world war ii is pretty well known pretty well documented i think he wrote a autobiography centered on his war experience but he he was uh the captain i'm pretty sure he was he was the captain of a pt boat in the pacific and i think another word for pt boat could be gunboat um because it's like a small boat that's meant to be easily maneuverable in shallow water that would feature a gun uh, which that makes me think of, and this has nothing to do with Crying Block 49, but I think a, there's a gunboat in, is the main boat in uh, Apocalypse Now, if you've seen that. Um, I think so. It's been a minute since I've watched that movie, but that sounds right. That, yeah, and this could, that that to me, I mean, I, I Googled gunboat. I didn't Google gunboat and food, but the in the context of the words surrounding it, at least in this chapter, it does seem to be some type of food uh, storage or food like, holding food um, thing, but it is interesting to me that that could be taken as a reference to JFK's service in World War II. Yeah, and well, and so while we're on it, I guess we might as well kind of address the the JFK side of this because, um, and and, and again, we're doing the the play is going to be a separate thing, and I think that more of of this connection is made through that play, um, but. There is so for those who aren't familiar, there it's I think it's linked on the the pension wiki. This article by Charles Hollander um, that is basically tying Lot Forty Nine to be a a sort of coded um, story about how the the FBI and the CIA were complicit in in the JFK assassination. Um, it's. I mean, in what I've read of the article, I haven't read the whole thing as of yet. I'm I'm trying to go through it as we go through chapter by chapter. And he makes some good points, but there's also a lot of just stretching to make connections that I don't really think are tenable. Um, 
but I, you know, it, it goes, I, we don't have to, you know, dismiss the idea wholly because we, I think most people at this point know that, you know, in the sixties, uh, the CIA was actively working to assassinate political leaders in various countries, you know, most notably Fidel Castro, um, sometimes hilariously failing. I think, I don't know if y'all have ever heard the story about the, the exploding cigars, but that actually happened. They tried to give him exploding cigars. Um, I, so that article, it's been a while since I've read it. Um, but, uh, the, I, I interpret it in a sense as, as essentially interpreting lot 49 as a piece of, as a piece of quote unquote wisdom literature. Um, and in turn, the article itself is phrased that way which is a genre of writing which basically implies that there is no, you cannot read it straightforwardly. There is no causal relation between the sentences per se. What it is instead is supposed to be essentially a long-form koan for your brain to wrestle with and eventually recognize its own inability to come to terms around and the author kind of takes that side of Lot 49 to imply that it is therefore about the JFK assassination. That makes me think of a few different things. So I I have a book of interviews with uh, DeLillo where he addresses uh, Libra. And he talks about how with the Warren Report, you know, like there's so much random shit in the Warren Report. There's like people's mom's dental records. And stuff like it's it's crazy that some of the stuff that's in there, which does seem to speak to a kind of like what you're talking about, like information overload and um, throwing throwing random facts at, at whoever's investigating um, while just kind of to overwhelm them. Uh, that also makes me think of what you're talking about, makes me think of Finnegan's Wake by Joyce. Um. I think one thing that I did kind of interpret the play as perhaps like it's so there's so much there's information overload in the play, um, which does make me think of the Warren report because um, it doesn't even the narrator um, who's summarizing the play doesn't seem to really have a good grasp on which parts of the play are important to the larger narrative of, of Lot 49 uh, or even really important to Oedipa. Uh, as she goes forward. Um, this is one thing I, I wrote down in the talking points. Um, but a one of the scholars I read uh, talked about how, and this came up in the in the new close readings of Lot 49 and in another article, who I kind of forget uh, who it was by and what the title was. But they were both talking about how, like, in Inherent Vice, um, the the detective story is like a, is like a typical detective story where he talks to sources and they, um, help, you know, the, the, they help the detective, uh, like, wh like, um, whittle down possibilities. Whereas in this book, uh, you know, Metzger, we talked, we talked about this last week, but Metzger, um, seems to just, in, in, instead of helping Oedipa seems to kind of be intentionally confusing her uh, fallopian also ha like seems to be doing this weird information overload of stuff that's not super relevant 
Um, you know, he even says, "Who cares?" After he goes, as I talked about earlier, as he after he goes on about the origins of the Penguin Society, um, and then Driblet at the end of this chapter does seem to be kind of doing the same thing, where Oedipa is asking for answers, and Driblet just seems to be intentionally confusing her and intentionally kind of talking shit and intentionally being difficult. Uh, this critic called what the characters were doing uh, refracting um, rather than in, like in a, t in a typical detective story, they would reflect the truth back to the detective. And then mm -hmm. in this story, the they're refracting the truth, which is, you know, they're complicating the truth. They're um, obs like being off. They're obfuscating. They're being intentionally obscure. Um which is an interesting way of thinking about it, and it definitely does. It's a, um, it's not something that I consciously thought about necessarily whenever I read it. Um, I've read it in the past, but it is interesting that, you know, this this story is in some ways uh, a detective story, but it's it's kind of a subversion of the the detective story. When when I read through it this time, and I I was trying to kind of focus on on the play. That's the part where I could I can see, and again we'll get into this in the in the bonus episode on the play, but I can see how there's that presentation of this is something, pay attention to this, it's important. But then after it's over, you know, like like you had mentioned, Luke, you know, she went and talked to Gibralet and you know, he says, uh, you came to talk to me about the play, he said. Let me discourage you. It was written to entertain people, like horror movies. Is it it isn't literature, it doesn't mean anything. Warfinger was no Shakespeare. Um, there, you know, I, I think that I, you know, and this is, this is just me kind of analyzing it in my own, in my own brain right now, but I, I get the feeling that, you know, there, there definitely are connections, I think, to be made between the JFK assassination and, and the story. You can't, that whole, you know, Washington, um, Dallas, California thing, that's that's a little bit too on the nose almost. But at the same time, I think Pynchon's also just saying, like, you can't, you know, and, and this is, you know, I'll, I'll bring it up now because I think this is the perfect kind of opportunity for it. So in that, uh, the, the new essays on the crying of Lot 49, um, the, the specific essay in here is, it's called um, Toward the Schizo Text, Paranoia as Semiotic Regime in the Crying of Lot 49 by John Johnston. Um, and he says, talking about um, the, the all these signs and, and everything that Oedipa is seeing, he says, um, her, quest will her quest will culminate in four symmetrical possibilities. Either she has indeed stumbled into a secret organization having objective historical evidence by which a number of Americans alienated and disenfranchised are communicating, or she is hallucinating it, hallucinating it by projecting a pattern onto various signs only randomly associated or she is the victim of a hoax set up by Inverarity, possibly as a means of perpetuating himself beyond death, or she is hallucinating such a hoax in a semiosis of the second possibility. Um, and then he kind of goes on to say basically that she's, you know, not, not just her, Oedipa, but us as the reader, have a tendency to take all these signs and create meaning out of them that may or may not actually be there. Yeah, and uh, just to sorry to go back to what Luke was saying there, um, the that particularly that particular quote from Driblet, um, it's written to entertain people, um, but we don't see the script 
we hear the summary of his vision. And his vision includes the three the three members of the Tristero. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the grassy knoll, etc., etc. Just ties into that. Um, but the the whole se- the semiotic interpretation of this book, I think, is the most cogent for uh, appreciating it on its own terms. Really, I, I I don't if you go back and try to chart like the source of sources of information throughout the book. It's not just that like Oedipus is spiraling out and has gone crazy and she's overwhelmed with grief and so she's hallucinating all of these symbols and meanings and messages. Um, it really is completely impenetrable to us as the reader. And it, it, if you try to narrow it down further than that, then you dig into those dependent truths. You get into, like, okay, well, but is it that she and Mucho aren't happy, or is it that they're just careless with each other, etc.? It, all those little things add up to nothing in the end. This uh, this just now occurred to me, which I'm not sure. It's not necessarily super relevant to what we're talking about right now. We don't know how Pierce died. Um, I was thinking about how Drablet, um, that's how you say his name. Um, you know, he his talk, him talking about the some of his dialogue seems to kind of foreshadow his eventual fate. Um, which I guess uh, is a bit of a spoiler right now. Um. But yeah, I, I do think it's interesting that we don't, you know, Edipa herself maybe doesn't know how Pierce died. Um, it is it is interesting to me that we never get that piece of information. You know, that's that's typically you hear somebody died, and you you know, at least people I know will usually ask, you know, well, how did they die? Um, mm-hmm. It's it's usually a pretty key piece of information. Um, and I don't know, part of um, part of Oedipa's grief and um, possible stress and, you know, possible, like, source for her only possible, like, maybe even probable, but not, like, for certain psychosis is, uh, you know, Pierce could have perhaps killed himself, which would then make Oedipa um, feel perhaps complicit or maybe, like, she wasn't there for him. That's kind of just a... It's not supported in the text at all because there's, there's no information about it. Um, but I don't, it, that, that occurred to me. Yeah. And I, I don't know what it was you just said that made this thought because it's not, it's not even tangentially related to what you were just saying. So sorry to, to jump off of your jumping off. Um, but what we see repeatedly throughout the book is Mucho and Edipa seem to be the only characters who don't have that narcissistic worldview like sure uh, Oedipa thinks the stamps are about her and Mucho thinks that it's really important that he believes in what he's doing but those are like normal human scale narcissisms they're not like I am the projector in the planetarium Um, they are not you know I am a founding father but those people who do have that sense of purpose that sense of certainty are the ones who are not bothered by the Tristero. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. What I wanted to come back to was, I think Luke was the one who mentioned that he was writing this at the same time he would have been writing Gravity's Rainbow and that there were some connections in there. The one that I I thought stood out the most and the Pension Wiki 
uh, kind of confirmed my suspicions when I hopped on there was the European Pleasure Casino in the middle of Lake Inverarity. That yeah. immediately made me think of the the casino Herman Gehring. The the casino Herman, uh, however you say his name, um, is a pretty. It's kind of in some ways the the most memorable memorable part of Gravity's Rainbow. Um, and it's it's the only part of Gravity's Rainbow, other than the parts about the white visitation that like the the action is set at the same place um, for a long period of time. Yeah. So and that I mean that also kind of goes back to his dropping you know lo- either locations or characters or or you know plot elements into each of the books. There's there's always that something to come back to whether it's Pig Bodine or or the casino Harmon Garrick or you know whatever things pop up along the way. So I, I always like to find those. But was there was there any other one that you found or is it just that one? Um. I don't think the because I, I for some reason was linking the Godzilla stuff to Gravity's Rainbow, but I think in Gravity's Rainbow there's the big part about King Kong. Yeah. Um. Which well, I, the against only... the day has that kind of Lovecraftian element in part. There's like those few pages where there's that kind of unknown creature that was captured in the ocean and brought back. You, you mean the scariest part, the scariest thing he's ever written? It is fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't I didn't see that connection, but I saw it mentioned on the Pynchon wiki. And yeah, it's definitely similar. Um, so you made that you made that joke in the first episode or the episode on chapter one about the, the I want to kiss your feet. Um, there is another reference to foot fetishes uh, with the evil Duke kissing the statue's feet and um, how he always does that and how they poison the, the statue's feet, um, mm-hmm. which to kind of go back to what you were talking about with. Castro um there were there were a lot of different um kind of weird assassination plots like you're talking about with the exploding cigar but I know that there are some other ones with like Castro um like being really into diving in the ocean scuba diving yeah, yeah and like pe- the CIA trying to like hide like bombs or something like it was, was Looney Tunes it was like episodes of Looney Tunes yeah which that yeah. does seem to be kind of maybe a bit of a reference to that I don't know how how well known that kind of stuff would have been in the 60s I mean Pynchon does seem to have some like insider information like I was talking about the other the other week about um MK Ultra, which you know he does he does seem to have knowledge uh like high level knowledge of stuff that didn't I'm I'm pretty sure was not uh common knowledge in the 60s um I was just going to say that we know that you know the dude in order to work for on the stuff he did for Boeing he has to have had like Q clearance or higher or whatever the version of that yeah was well that and also uh, he having gone to was it uh Cornell that he went to yeah yeah he he would have you know there would have been people I think I read somewhere that he had been like across the hall from someone who ended up working with uh with the Nixon administration or it may have even been the Johnson administration um so he uh, yeah I, I'm fairly certain he's ha- he had connections from either uh, his time at Boeing or or from Cornell another thing I wanted to bring up is you talked a lot about narcissism last week and uh there's the reference for me on page 66 the Saint Narcissus um, which I did, I did look up Saint Narcissus just on Wikipedia, and he does seem to be tied to the um, like when Easter is and stuff. Which I have seen the crying of Lot Forty Nine, the Forty Nine possibly being a reference to 
like the 50 days of of Lent or whatever that is, like the Passover stuff. I'm not, I don't, I've never really, I was, I was raised Christian, but I was raised in like a, in a non-denominational church. So I'm not, I'm not an expert on all the, the number stuff. And I, I mean, I personally found it kind of weird that they were linking 49 with 50 because those are two separate numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's some other narcissistic stuff. Like Driblet seems pretty narcissistic. You know, like he he says oh, that the sure. the whole play is in his head, and that the 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 play has no significance other than or has no life other than what he gives to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another example of Metzger's narcissism is when they're I think they're on the boat in Fingosa Lagoons, or it's around the time of the Fingosa Lagoons thing. Like he um, seems super worried about what his hair looks like. Um, which does yeah. speak to some narcissism. Something that, in a weird way, just reminded me of, um, there's instances in this chapter, and I think also in chapter two, um, it happened once, where Metzger is concerned with crimes that are being committed around him, like crimes that he could be tied to but didn't actually commit, like with uh, with the the paranoids um at one point they he he mentions possession i'm trying to find out where it is. oh yeah yeah when when the, they mentioned like oh we're all on pot and they kind of laughed and and leonard the drummer now reached into the pocket of his beach robe and produced a fistful of marijuana cigarettes and distributed them among his chums metzger uh, closed his eyes turned his head muttering possession like he's weirdly concerned about these crimes by proxy that he's there for but he doesn't seem to be concerned about crimes that he is actually committing, like providing alcohol to minors and rape. Well, I, actually, that that brings me to to kind of a correction of what we said last episode. Um, first of all, he's thirty five years old. Yes, thank you. I I was going to bring that up too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And second of all, he explicitly tries to prevent the paranoids from getting at the uh, tequila sours. He he is sitting on the thermos whenever he and Edipa are not drinking out of it. He does okay. seem really protective of the alcohol. Then um, I misread that. Yes, yeah, so, so did I. The one last thing I wanted to bring up was I did talk about last week um, that self-published uh, scholar who that guy that guy a lot of I think at least three or four of the of the twelve articles in that book were published in um, like literary scholarship magazines. So he's not a complete hack. You know, like he he has had some success in the pitch and scholarship uh, sphere. Um, but I don't I don't think he brought this up. But I did find in the like the we get like a few lines from the play. I think like three or four. But there is the line uh, a wedlock whose sole child is miracle, which I did think it's it's a bit of a stretch. But I did think that that could be used as evidence that um, Pierce was trying to be reincarnated through Oedipa, Oedipa and um, Metzger. Um, I don't know. I can't remember if he brought up that particular line, but it did remind me of that. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that links into that idea for sure. Yeah. And then I, I had another, there's one last thing. Let me look. Yeah, uh, I, there's two different references that I found. Um, there's a reference to pigs on page 49 for me, uh, which Pynchon, I don't think, I don't know if we've been over this yet, but Pynchon, uh, does seem to be it seems to be like kind of his like calling card or is a pretty big part of his identity at least in how others define him is is his obsession with pigs which comes up in gravity's rainbow more 
mm-hmm. it's just the word piglets. Um, it's not necessarily a, a major part of this chapter. But I did... Um, there was... One of the Reddit mods um, does have a video on YouTube about Oedipa's name um, and the significance of that. It's been a, two or three years since I watched that video. Um, but there is kind of an Oedipi- Oedipus Rex reference in the play um, to incest, um, which I did find interesting. That's another thing uh, I'm, I'm hoping we can get into maybe in like the general discussion about the book is the significance of Oedipa's name. Yeah, because it's I know there's the connection to obviously the the um, Greek mythology of that, and Oedipus was it, it, correct me if I'm wrong here was responsible for solving the was it the riddle of Thebes? Yeah, the Sphinx's riddle. Yeah. Sphinx's yeah. riddle. Thank you. The yeah. Sphinx's riddle. Yeah. So you can kind of look at it as that Oedipus trying to solve the riddle of you know Pierce and his you know whatever he's doing. Yeah, I may need to I may need to refresh myself on the on the Oedipus Rex thing because I I have read that play I think for school, but it's been at least ten years. Yeah, I I read it slightly more recently. I can't bring any real references to the forefront of my mind right now. But and it's it's not talked about in in scholarship barely at all. Like I I've you know I've gone over a few different uh, books and articles and none of them seem to really address her. Um, her name other than um, I mean Oedipus I think is on some type of quest in his um, in the play and Oedipus is on a quest and that does seem to be a recurring theme with Pynchon is uh, detective stories and the main character being on a type of quest to to find something Um, I think it's pretty much all of his books have aspects of of the quest narrative oh yeah yeah yeah, well, yeah. so well, Oedipus Rex is the story of Oedipus after having killed his father and married his mother, mm-hmm. then losing, then realizing what has happened, coming to the bot, coming to the conclusion that that is what has happened, and ending things by tearing out his own eyes. Yeah, and I, I, I'm under the impression that there's that the that's just the first play in a trilogy of plays. Um, it's by far yeah, the most well known yeah. one. But there are there are two plays that follow that in the same with like Oedipus as a character that I I've never heard anyone really talk about or reference or anyone that you know it doesn't seem to be talked about at all. So it, actually, in that in that Hollander article, he talks he goes over most of the characters in the beginning of the book and kind of provides these analyses of their names and that part was really interesting. I'll, so again, I'll I'll send it to y'all and it's on the. For the listeners, it's on the uh, subreddit or not on the, the pension wiki, but he yeah he brings up some interesting concepts on the names that I thought was interesting. Just another thing that I wanted to bring up in this chapter: uh, what what do y'all make of the section where Oedipus like, hey, I want to go backstage and ask about the bones and Tristero, and Metzger's response is just going off complaining about you know these these young libs who want to like yeah i that that was such it's such a it's really the most character exploration we get about metzger in the entire book and it doesn't go anywhere it doesn't have anything to do with anything else so i okay so i had an interesting reading of that and i I marked a few things in my in my copy about it because um, 
that particular scene stuck out to me because yeah, she mentions um, that she's a young Republican and then Metzger basically just like shits all over her political ideology with the whole Hap Harrigan comics, uh, which she's hardly old enough to read John Wayne on Saturday afternoon, so on and so forth. Um, and then after all of that, uh, Oedipa is just kind of, you know, beaten down, uh, by the whole thing and, and it says that she just wants him to be on her side. And, uh, he says against whom inquired Metzger putting on shades that putting on shades part, I thought was really the, really the most interesting part of all of that, because is, is that meant to see, are we meant to see that as he's part of everything, you know, because there's that whole, you know, visual concept of like, you know, the CIA and the secret service with the the dark sunglasses and the, and that imagery of it. I don't know if that would have been around at that time, but there's certainly something to be said about him putting on sunglasses after that, even though I am almost positive they're still inside at that point. Yeah, well, and the the bartender at the scope is wearing sunglasses, and I, I believe that Oedipa, when she starts crying and looking at the painting in chapter one, I believe that she's wearing sunglasses. She's wearing glasses too, yeah. Which does, it does seem to be kind of like a minor recurring theme in the recurring thing in this book, um, people wearing sunglasses when it's not appropriate to do so. Well, I think you guys are clearly just uh, making a whole lot of nonsense up. Clearly, Thomas Pynchon in 1968 just understood that in 50 years, people would start saying shade to mean mildly insulting someone. <laughs> I think that's just the obvious reading. Yeah, here. I think you're, you're 100% right. Um, any, did we have anything else we wanted to go over or do we want to jump into quotes? You can jump into quotes. Yeah, I think it's quote time. All right. For me, it's the, the last part of the chapter when she's talking to Driblet, and he says, you could fall in love with me. You can talk to my shrink. You can hide a tape recorder in my bedroom. See what I talk about from wherever I am when I sleep. You want to do that? You can put together clues, develop a thesis or several about why characters reacted to the Tristero possibility the way they did, why the assassins came on, why the black costumes. You could waste your life that way and never touch the truth. That, to me, and, and that goes back to the whole semiotics thing of you can look at this and you can take every part of it out and, and put, it, you know, put it through the ringer and analyze and, and connect all these dots here and there, but what is it going to get you at the end of the day? Like you might, you might not even be wrong. Like you might just be drawing all these conclusions that you're putting, you're connecting these dots that aren't supposed to be connected. And I, I think that is one of those times that pensions kind of coming out and talking directly to us as readers. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if that parts of that conversation, you know, if, if they were added in after he already had a first draft of the, the beginning, middle and end, you know, where it, it does seem to be like a commentary on the way that readers, if they read this book, um, that's something that I've been somewhat guilty of, I think is um, trying to draw conclusions um, whenever, you know, like whenever the opposite of whatever conclusion I'm drawing could just as well be true. Um, and it is kind of, it is interesting to me that as a artistic choice, uh, authorial choice that he, seems to be addressing the reader so directly and kind of maybe playing with the reader a little bit. Um, because, you know, whenever you read a detective story, 
Uh, a lot of, I don't typically do this myself, but a lot of people try to figure out the mystery uh, or the answer to the quest or whatever uh, before the ending and stuff. And, you know, there's not a lot of resolution in this book, um, which this does seem to be kind of pinching, acknowledging that and messing with the reader a little bit. Yeah, there's a reason that Pynchon is kind of counted in the troop of the post-structuralist philosophy terms. Yeah, the thinking about post-structuralism did come up uh, for me earlier in terms of... I have read the first book of the two books in Capitalism and Schizophrenia. Uh, I don't... I didn't feel like I had a very good grasp on on what was going on in that book. But that is something they get into is uh, opposites and trying to kind of rise above thinking of of things as opposites and kind of rising above uh, binary thought, which does is addressed in this book. Um, I think it's we haven't gotten the quote yet, but there's there's a part in this book where I think Oedipa is talking about excluded middles. Uh, which is comes up in literary criticism about this book some too, um, where you know Pynchon seems to be kind of commenting on on um, the falsity of either or thinking and stuff, um, which also kind of makes me think of uh, Nietzsche's uh, Beyond Good and Evil, mm. where he kind of talks about how both good and evil are uh, you know like human constructs and. Um, there are more basically that there are more important things than than binary thinking um that there's a, a different way of thinking about stuff rather than black and white and us versus them yeah in a, in a more general sense it's fairly clear that pynchon thinks that that kind of black and white thinking is maybe not a maybe not uh, to use the the modern uh, phrase uh, maybe not a psyop but definitely a tool used by the powers that be uh, in order to prevent people from sufficing on their own, to, to say. Yeah, and even taking the black versus white thing literally, that does, uh, the part in Gravity's Rainbow where Slothrop goes down the toilet and um, seems to be revealing his, his um, kind of innate racism mm-hmm. um, does seem to kind of speak to the fact that... Um, Kind of figure out I was going with this, but it does seem to speak to the fact that, um, like black versus white, literally black people versus white people, that was definitely a thing in the '60s uh, with the Black oh, Panther yeah. movement and that kind of stuff. Uh, so just a, another quote: the the way that sea is discussed, especially in these last two chapters, the sea and water. I know it's a larger motif throughout the book, but I, I I've, you know, for some something about it reminds me and makes me think that maybe uh, what's his Pierce drowned himself or something just to, just gives me that hunch hmm. but in in particular the the sorrow of this quote and I don't I don't have a page number but it's uh on their way to Fungosa Lagoons and the quote is Edipa had believed long before leaving Kinneret in some principle of the sea, as redemption for Southern California, not, of course, for her own section of the state, which seemed it needed none. Some unvoiced idea that no matter what you did to its edges, the true Pacific stayed inviolate, 
and integrated, or assumed the ugliness at any edge into some more general truth. Perhaps that was only that notion, its arid hope, she sensed, as this forenoon they made their, way, their seaward thrust, which would stop short of any sea. I, I, I find that whole discussion of the true sea and the, the what we call the sea just a, a really beautiful, just a beautiful section. Yeah, yeah that yeah, that is really beautiful. Uh, one thing I just now thought about, which is not really a quote, but um, there's the we've talked about the Godzilla stuff. I've talked about the Godzilla stuff a fair amount, which, like I said, comes up in Vineland. But I want to say that there's it's documented that Pynchon, um, in his correspondence in I don't want to say it's the 70s, uh, told wrote somebody and said that he was working on uh, an entire book um about the uh a a a real not a real estate a an insurance adjuster following in the wake of Godzilla and calculating the you know pretty much incalculable damage done by Godzilla um which does kind of speak to the intertextuality of um of his work um this is another kind of aside um, Sorry, before you move on from that, was that a real thing? I thought that was a 4chan meme. I think I want to say it, I may be basing this off Reddit. I but I do think it was something with like a because it comes up in 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 Vineland that that exact um plot line and it's just kind of like a little subplot for like two or three pages. Um, I don't know. Okay. I I do think I don't. I haven't. I know that we do. Like there are some um, like libraries that do have his correspondence, some of his letters. I want to say it's confirmed that he at least wrote that in a letter. That was like one of the one of the books he was working on, uh, presumably while he was working on at least Mason and Dixon, and perhaps against the day. Um, it's on the it's on the pension wiki. What you're talking about? Yeah. Um, there's just a line here in the in the Vineland section where it says, in fact, at one point rumor had it that he was writing a book with Mothra as a major character. Oh, it also comes up in the wiki for this chapter too, I think. I think so. That may be where the yeah, that may be the other place I was thinking of. And um this is this is a bit of an aside, but um I read the Dangerous Visions anthology of short stories, which it's all genre fiction short stories, but Harlan Ellison, who put who put the anthology together in two different parts uh, of the book, talks about how he had um, solicited Pynchon for a short story, and Ellison seems to be seems to imply that the reason that Pynchon is not included in that anthology is was like rights issues or something like um, some type of like kind of bureaucratic uh, bullshit that kind of stopped Pynchon from being included. It did just now occur to me that I guess because the the Godzilla part in Vineland is pretty short, um, but that that it, I guess that could have it. It just now occurred to me that that short story that Ellison is talking about could very well have been a short story about um, the insurance adjuster following following in Godzilla's wake. Um, it would kind of fit in with the rest of the stories in that anthology. Food for thought, at least. Yeah, yeah. that's my little my little uh, fan theory. Uh, but to go into quotes, probably my favorite quote from this section, it happens pretty early on in the chapter, but the description, uh, mucho, like, mucho watching, uh, 
teenagers dancing. It's described the the teenage girls are described as their dancing is described as doing the vertical backstroke, mm. which is yeah. just a really fun visual visual image. Something like really fun to picture is you know people like making an ass of themselves dancing to teeny bopper music. I might go over the. Yeah, we went over the birth. The birth society being left leaning is just a fun little joke. Um, and I already said this, but the description of the sea battle is pretty long and involved. And then Fallopian says, "Who cares?" Which he's the one who gave them that information. And then he's like, "It doesn't matter," which is just kind of a fun, fun little thing. Uh, and then at the end of the chapter, the you can put together clues, develop a thesis, or several. Um, this it speaks to like what that quote that you brought 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 in Cody about the different possibilities um for the plot and how as it relates to Oedipa. Um you know it's it, it does seem to speak to how open ended this book is. All right. So what is for you the the most pinch on part of the chapter? I think for me it has to be the just random the random decision for the narrator to just take control and just give insane amounts of foreshadowing with no like foreshadowing that's useless it just doesn't you can't get anything out of it other than well that's the word i should look for like the the, the opening of the chapter up through the you know the trip to fangosa lagoons has these periodic paragraphs where it's just pinch and talking to the reader directly without providing them any useful information. Um, I, I think for me, it's it's not necessarily a part of the chapter that is the most pinch on. It's, it's Driblet as a character. Um, and I think that a lot of his um, interaction with Oedipa is, is pinch on talking directly to us as readers. Yeah, that does seem to be a, a pretty pinch on type thing. Um him kind of making fun of literary scholarship even you could interpret that um as being a commentary on how literary scholars you know like um come up with all these theories and these convoluted um articles um make a bigger deal out of stuff than than they possibly should yeah i don't know i mean just the i guess the the boat being called Godzilla 2 is strikes <laughs> me as a pretty pension type thing to to name a boat do we have anything else we wanted to go over? So the the Manny Depresso thing, I think there might be some kind of allusion to the idea that actors are manic and lawyers are depressive. Um, and especially you know with the way that Metzger just kind of goes with the f goes with the flow, and that's not what you usually associate with depression. But he goes with the flow, but he's also completely untouched by anything nothing around him affects him he's just kind of stolid he is he is metzger he will always be metzger he's 35 he should have known better by now than to trust some young lib gal to not go sticking her fingers where they shouldn't go um that's a good point I mean, that's yeah. kind of, that's kind of a mood that resonates with depression a bit don't don't know what to make of it but i think you know I don't know why else you would have an actor lawyer with that name. So again, everything regarding the play will be a uh, bonus episode uh, in the near future. And we'll, we'll dive deeper into that at that time. Chapter four is next. Not a long one. If I remember correctly, it's, it's maybe the shortest chapter. 
No, it's not as short as chapter one, maybe, but it's it's still pretty short. It's less than twenty pages. So, um, all right. Well, as as always, um, if anybody has any questions or comments, uh, please send them to mappingthezonepod at gmail dot com, and we will happily take a look at them and um, and read them and address them as best we can. Um, as, as well as interpretations that, that anyone else has and, and how their, their analysis of this book uh, may differ from ours or support what we've been saying. Um, and then also, I just want to say thank you to everyone on the Reddit, the subreddit that's been really supportive of us so far. Um, we really appreciate it. And um, yeah, we'll, we're going to keep keep going on with this one and not too much more to go over. We're at, we're at the halfway point now for this book. Uh, until next week, we will see everyone later. Bye. See y'all.